0: Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, Thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. The 2020 election season is soon coming to a close. Thank God in heaven. Like many of you, we here at SEF wonder, why are American executive presidential elections so damn exhausting and disappointing every time? And we're going to find out. But first, as always, the random question of the episode. Christy and Cody, here's my question for you today. If you could choose any time period in the past to live in, and let's say, at least before 1989, what era would it be and why?
1: Ooh, you said before
0: 1989? Mm -hmm. So no 90s, no early early
1: 2000s. (laughs) I did live through those. So um, I would definitely pick World War II. Like, seriously, since I've been a kid, I always wanted to live in Europe during the Holocaust and be a part of the resistance. Oh, um, Fight the Nazis and save the Jews. That's what i've always wanted to do
0: <laughs> nice are we talking like french resistance and the dutch Polish resistance what are we talking mm-hmm. about
1: good question maybe even the german resistance it's all high and german Ooh. so be inside the country and get people out
0: solid solid
2: i not an answer i was expecting <laughs> <laughs>
0: nope and i think any
2: answer other than that's going to be just absolutely disappointing so you know cody here you go your turn thanks for that intro <laughs> Um, I mean, look, now's a pretty great time to live. So it's kind of hard to, to pick elsewhere, but I'm going to take the next best cop out and say during the revolution so that I could help fight the revolutionary war, maybe help or maybe be invited to the, the constitutional convention and then refuse to go. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I, I would probably pick the revolution. That seems to be the best for me. That's a fair
0: answer. I'll take Good that. Good
2: one. I like, oh, that. man,
0: I was thinking about this earlier today, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you know, if I had money, because you know, a lot of the, a lot of these past choices are predicated on, you know, if I'm one of those wealthy landowners, I mm-hmm. would totally be Victoria, England, if I you know, if you got money, right, because. Ah. I would just want to go to one of, those, one of those clubs where the leather chairs, no one talks. i got to smoke my, smoke my cigar, drink my brandy, have my <laughs> feet in slippers. No one's allowed to talk. That just sounds mm, beautiful, <laughs> wonderful. That's paradise, right? Now, my, of course, uh... the
2: rest of society is still doing <laughs> terrible, but I'm not. So,
0: <laughs> My
2: classics professor, one of my favorite professors in college, would always say that anytime you think that history was great, just imagine yourself as the worst person in society, not the best. Mm-hmm. So now it always colors every art because I, you know, like living during the Roman Republic or something like that would be great. Like, no, you're probably a slave. You're yeah. You're one of the slave. 100%. That's why I always predicate like, okay, if I'm now, if
0: I'm going to the convention or if yeah. I'm, if I'm one of the landowners, right. If I'm, if I'm a viscount, marquess, or some nonsense like that. Right. <laughs> okay. You know, but Chrissy went full blown. Nope. I'm going to be dirt poor and I'm fighting the resistance. Awesome. We'll, we'll take that. <laughs> We are here to talk about not just the 2020 election, but what appears to be like every election. How on earth do we have such, I don't know, you know me, I think we live in sometimes the most polarizing time in American history. And we talked about last week, that's not true. (laughs) Last time, that's not true. But God bless it, it feels pretty awful. And I've often said that our elections and campaigns are nothing more than Bread and circus politics. Let's take two political gladiators throw them against each other for our amusement, and they'll use, uh, the, they'll use their elections to bribe us with ridiculous promises with, with virtue signaling sound bites. Uh, that's what it feels like. Cody. am I wrong here? I, am, am, I, am I overblowing this? Can you explain bread and circus politics? like
2: I don't feel like I'm wrong, but let, let's, let's see if my history matches with my estimation. No, you're definitely dead on with bread and circus politics. Uh, Panem and Kirkensis is how that originated. Um, it's a, a Roman poet in the ooh, late first century CE. Um, Juvenal. And he has a piece where he's, he's writing about the politics of the day and basically says that the people have abdicated their duties and, you know, they used to, to care about handing out military commands they used to care about civil offices um, and so this is in kind of Roman Empire now um, and now everybody just anxiously hopes for two things and that's bread and circuses so basically what he's doing in that at that time was decrying the Roman people for just not caring about civil society anymore they stopped caring about the you know Senate not that it was you know it didn't matter as much anymore but you know, stopped caring about the Senate, stopped caring about high offices, and just started caring about what politics would give to them. And bread and circuses are two really important things for Romans. So when we're talking about bread, we're talking about the grain dole, um, the cura anoni, and and no, no anononi? No? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> and basically, this is the grain dole that was started in 120-ish BC by the older Gracchi brother and started out as kind of the first Roman welfare system in a sense. Basically, it was subsidized grain for people that didn't make a lot of money. This gets expanded later on, inevitably is a larger group of people and it becomes free and it becomes more than bread. But this handing out of food became so important for the Roman masses that it became just really popular for politicians and people who were running for office or people who, you know, um, emperors as they gained office to just hand out food or or expand the dole. Uh, And then in games, obviously, interestingly enough, everybody thinks gladiators, right? That's the first thing that comes to your mind. what we're actually talking about more so is uh, chariot racing. That was by far the most popular. So there's your fun fact of the day. Romans because chariot racing more because than when we gladiators.
0: talk about circus, we're not talking
2: about the Colosseum. We're talking about an actual thing called the circus, right? Exactly. The stadium where they did the, uh, the chariot racing are this, the circuses and then co- the Colosseum, like, well, and actually that's a really good example. The Colosseum is perfect. So the Flavian amphitheater, which is what it was called in Roman times. Um, when it was finished in 70 CE, they threw a hundred days of games, a hundred straight days of state-sponsored games to celebrate the, the opening of a state-built facility. <laughs> but it was just absolute insanity. And what the emperor was doing wasn't just launching you know, this fancy new facility, but what he was doing was covering up the fact that there were there was a huge fire in Rome that year that had dropped spirits. There was another plague in Rome um, that year,
0: another, and then just
2: um, just just another plague. Another plague. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Vesuvius erupted before the the amphitheater was finished. So oh, well, that that's just pleasantly dandy. So you know, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. Magically, a hundred days of games to get the people's mind off of how poor policy is managing the state and how they can't really control what's going on. So, you know, I could sit here and chat about Roman history for the entirety of the episode, but (laughs) go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, this, so this is just really like, this is where it comes from. And this is the idea and it really is purely bread and games at that time. But we see this evolving through history as politicians start promising, um, individuals or large groups of individuals benefits or handouts, or, you know, we're going to take care of you when I'm in power. And that's exactly what this is about. I mean, uh, Orwell talks about this in 1984. This is his uh, pro feed. This is a very common thing dating back to the Roman Empire. So no, you're dead on, uh, you know, bread and circus politics is the bread and butter of politics. That's a really poor <laughs> way to... <laughs>
0: Before we leave Roman history too oh. early, I do, want to ask, I do want to ask about something. So, you're talking about how the Roman citizenry abandoned uh, their, their, their civic duty or civil society, like the, this idea about handing out military promotions. Can you explain what you meant by the, the citizens of Rome just kind of gave up? Can you explain that a little more?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, in, in civic participation in Rome is very different if we're talking about kind of like mid. Roman Republic, Late Republic, Early Empire. Um, The Roman system, obviously, so there's the ruling class, then there's also kind of the businessman class, the equestrians. Those are the new men, not the old money. Uh, And then you have the rest of the people in Rome that's called the plebs, the plebeians. But the way that all of these people would participate was this really complex barter system where, you know, senators would be responsible for a large, you know, just like our senators are responsible for their constituency. Roman senators were kind of in a way also, except for it was like basically favors and benefits that they owed to people that helped them get there. So it was a slightly different, and I don't mean that in like a bribery sense, but very truly just in like a, you guys are helping me get elected to office, get appointed to office. Therefore I'm going to turn back and, you know, I'm responsible for you. Once I'm there, I'm going to support you. You know, we'll provide for the community sort of thing. So, and the Roman people used to care a lot, especially in the, the Republic, about who was going to be elected to consul. So that the two leaders of the state are the two consuls. So they used to care heavily about those positions, but also there's a number of high power positions in the Roman Republic that um, citizens would be, you know, would be very relevant to the citizenry. So the leader of the church, um, the, uh, pers- the treasurer, essentially. So these are people that would adjust, uh, because when they collected taxes from the provinces in Rome, basically they got a bunch of bids, and whoever agreed to you know, collect the most money for the, was the one that won the tax bid. So treasurers had a lot of power bringing revenue into Rome. So, but what you see is eventually, with the Gracchi brothers, you see this mob mentality start to come up, and the plebs are getting more and more upset with Rome not giving them things as the city is growing. And you start to see things like the grain dole, like civil programs, things like that. And as those kind of spiral out of control, the individuals stop caring about the offices and the politics and the people. And they start caring a lot more about what do I get when you are in power, not how is this going to to affect the community or the society
0: almost like a public mass scale patronage system. Hey, you're our guy. We got your office. Now you give us, give us stuff, right? Almost like the Senator thing,
2: but on a totally massive corrupted scale almost. Yeah. And instead of it being from the Senator's pockets from the individual, it's now from the state.
0: Mm. Okay. So that's, that's the key difference. Instead of senators doing what they can do for for themselves to their to their patrons it's what can the state through its mechanisms do for the entire population for the entire empire okay so i think we're starting to see some immediate similarities but before (laughs) we get into those modern immediate similarities christy you are our resident professional politico okay you are our you are our person who understands modern politics better than cody better than myself Last week, or not last week, last episode, you told me, you both, you both corrected me that <laughs> our Supreme Court nominations, our, our politics in general, is not as bad as I think. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's pretty bad, but you know, we've had this time before where you go through these swings, we go through these moods, um, and that, no, that, I, I can accept that, I understand it, but I got to say, I cannot shake the feeling that our presidential debates And campaigns are wholly unsubstantial i mean if you look at the the trump biden debate the first one right and you compare that to the reagan carter debate like in the 1980 i mean you got to see what i'm seeing right i i can't just be making this up tell me am i am i crazy for thinking that this is really that bad it feels that bad
1: well, so you're definitely not crazy, even though I think a lot of people feel like they're crazy watching politics in 2020, <laughs> uh-huh, but that's so a, not a unique feeling. But no, I think, so there's some differences and some similarities to history. I mean, some differences, we, we sometimes have presidents who come along in America who almost redefine what that office is, or should I say, who can hold that office? I, I don't know that you can point to any American president in the past and say that he's exactly like Donald Trump. I don't know that we'll ever elect someone exactly like him again. He's a unique personality. Um, love him or don't love him, uh, focus on his policies or his personality. Either way, people have vastly different opinions of him. Um, I, of course, you know, I mean, hey, I worked for the Party. I want to see him get elected, and I think actually, as a side note, I actually think we're going to see the uh, destruction, for lack of a better word, of the polling industry in America. I think polling is going to be seen as completely illegitimate across the nation after this election. I think they've gotten it completely wrong again. But that's another conversation. Um, The point is, you can whether or not you can point to a former president who's exactly like Trump, or or even a presidential candidate who is as um questionable as biden as far as like is he all there or is he not right now and that whole narrative um you can certainly point to polarizing people who were president before and who literally had half the country love them and half the country hate them or half the country question if they were all there when they were in office or when they ran their campaign so while the exact personality may be different we've certainly seen that and as far as um presidential debates or election campaigns themselves go, certainly with the advent of the internet and social media, and I, I would argue the turning of mainstream media to biases that they hold, which did not used to be a common thing, you do see more divisive uh, political campaigns across the nation, because it, it's always in people's ears everywhere you turn it's on a tv screen it's on your friend's facebook feed it's on twitter um you know most americans aren't even on twitter thankfully but the point is in their own way throughout history actually the jefferson adams election was quite divisive itself and that's going back to 1800. that's an
2: understatement i told Oh man. It's
1: crazy that one. Um I'm not an expert on it, but like there were even like the drawn, the hand drawn political cartoons that were like make fun of John Adams. Didn't like, Jefferson
0: scary. Didn't Jefferson have a, 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 a surrogate newspaper called Adams a a hermaphrodite or something like that? I
1: think so. <laughs> Yeah, and, and when um, when Jefferson won, they would draw cartoons making fun of John Adams and say, John Adams is no more, which obviously wasn't the case, but they're like rubbing it in his face. And that's before there was like the modern Democrat and Republican Party, but they were members of two opposing political parties. Could you
2: imagine a debate with Jefferson when the moderators? Like, so how yeah. many people have you killed in duels? And Jefferson answer <laughs> has to be, I'm not actually sure.
1: I know. (laughs) No. Well, the other like interesting thing about the history of um presidential elections and debates is also, I mean, the Lincoln Douglas debates are one of the classic presidential debates that everyone knows in history. And at that time people really paid attention to them, even though every single one of them was held in Illinois. They didn't travel the nation at all. Um, but people just zoned into that, however. While there was a big division between Lincoln, the first Republican president ever to get elected, and the Republican Party was founded, in fact, too, in in many ways, to get rid of slavery, but the Democrats were actually the party that was divided in among themselves. You saw more like inter-party divisiveness, like the Northern Democrats, of which Stephen Douglas was a member, didn't necessarily advocate for the expansion of slavery, but they did advocate for states' rights, and therefore they wanted the South to be able to keep slavery. Uh, And then the Southern Democrats were very, very pro-slavery. So you actually saw those two parties um, nominate their own person. And that's partly why Lincoln won is because the Democrats were so divided. So there's been a lot of, I guess, varieties of divisiveness and different debates where those two people just either hugely clashed or one of them made, made a big splash on the national scene. Um, And the only other point I wanted to make in in history, because I think this is interesting, having been to two um, national Republican conventions myself, the record for how many ballots had to be voted on at a party's national convention is 103. Uh, So there's one national convention where literally all the people there, all the delegates had to cast 103 ballots before the party selected their nominee. So just going oh, to the point hell. of inter-party divisiveness used to be perhaps more common than party against party, but American divisiveness in presidential elections is not altogether uncommon.
2: Well, and so this, see, I think I want to pick up on, before we move on, Sam, But I want to pick up on something that we're talking about here, because this is something that interested me when we're talking about debates. So the Lincoln-Douglas debate isn't actually a presidential debate. That's for the Illinois um, Senate seat, which is why they're all in Illinois, right? No, you're so correct.
1: Thank so, you for but,
2: that. yeah, but that's in, so that's in 1858 there, you know, the results of that are basically the Republican party falls in love with it. Lincoln runs him two years later on, even though nobody knows him and he wins because of the split. Um, but the first presidential debate isn't until 1960. So the, there, there were, um, FDR was challenged to a debate in 1940 and declined and then uh, there's no presidential debates. The first presidential debate is Kennedy-Nixon in 1960. Right. And then it goes so poorly for Nixon that mm, the next president, yeah. <laughs> right. he, that? I mean, he just got out of the hospital. He looked terrible. Um, I, the interesting anecdote from that debate is I guess that people that were listening on the radio overwhelmingly thought that Nixon won, but only 11% of uh, listeners were, were tuning in on radio. Everybody else had a TV by that point. And of the people that were watching on TV, the vast majority thought Kennedy won. So really interesting divide there on whether you're kind of seeing or hearing, but not another debate for 16 years. Next set is Ford and Carter. Ford makes some real stupid statements that are kind of (laughs) have widely gone down as being one of the biggest debate blunders in history um, but then in 76, that after that is when we start getting these uh, regular debates. So after 76, then obviously you've got Reagan, Carter at 80, and then after that, they're normal. But, um, yeah, you know, it's hard to draw kind of a trend from presidential debates when, you know, this is only the 40th year of presidential debates, essentially. So right. it's a relatively short period. Um, and I think what we're seeing is what we were talking about earlier on is it's not that they've gotten more vitriolistic it's that it's permanently broadcast and shoved down your throat and it's not just the presidential uh, you know debates or election it's the president and the senate and the house and your locals elections and you know instead of only having to deal with you know a few elections you're also dealing with you know senators from out of state that you, that are you know constantly on, on media or social media you're dealing with elections and ballot issues that are constantly being broadcast to you from across the united states whereas before you were really only dealing with your local issues and then up ballot
1: yeah, yeah. no that's a good point that um presidential debates are i guess a good illustration of the divide even if they haven't been around forever, I think you're right that it's difficult to like compare uh, them since there's been, I guess, relatively few. I think it's the campaigns in general in their own way with whatever media, I guess, was available to people at the time seem to have always been the time in you know the year for Americans mm-hmm. to find something to pick apart and fight with each <laughs> other about. Let's say America is sort of a country that we kind of like to fight each other um, through words. when we can
0: (laughs) and 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 you're certainly right in the regard that you know the 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 medium is often going to affect the message and you know we talk about how how we're we're deep into the social media age and you know how does how do platforms like twitter instagram and facebook how do they affect a debate right because you know if, if 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 politics is downstream of culture and the culture is going to affect how our political discourse happens, then you got to wonder what exactly caused a debate like Biden-Trump. So, yeah, we could talk about personalities, but would it be all that different without Trump? Yeah, probably. There'd probably be a little bit of a difference, but you'd probably have a, a, this, you know, bring it back to bread and circus. You'd probably still have this whole, this is just a spectacle. This is, I don't remember the, the, a single policy position mentioned during that debate. I, I just mentioned attack after attack, you know, maybe they had policy here and there, but that's not what anyone remembers. We just remember attacking him, attacking that, and um don't you don't you smart with me don't you ever use the word smart with me or uh, would you shut up, man? Just we just had this this whole it was a memeified debate I think that's the best way to say it. if we are in the age of memes, this was the perfect debate for such an occasion, right because And I guess to to, to really single in and focus in on on an idea here, the debates themselves may or may not be all that bad. I think they are. But I think because they're at the end of the election process for president, they just evoke a sense of exhaustion, right? And, you know, you look at countries like the United Kingdom, in the United Kingdom, I mean, I, and I don't know every detail, but really when it comes to their major national offices, they vote maybe once every three or five years, at least every five years, but at least about three every five years. And they really vote for a member of parliament and that's it. Okay. And when the prime minister calls for an election, because no, they have the power to do that. When the prime minister calls for election, the election is set. There's a date. It, it's a, it's not a regular date. It's not like the, it's not the first Tuesday after the first Monday of even near November's. It's Hey, we're gonna have an election in five months. Get ready, and they're and off to the races they go. But in five months, the game's over. We have presidential debates. It used to be okay. Wow, a year's a year out. But hey, you know what? It's almost a two-year process. I mean, for God's sake, Biden and uh, uh, Bernie, and now it's practically eighteen months out from the election itself. And so we're just constantly bombarded with these political uh, maneuverings, these advertisements, is this a problem? Is, is the length of our elections a problem, or is it a necessary component in how competitive our elections are? That's my question. Is this, do we need it to be this long, or is this a byproduct of being naturally competitive in a competitive country? <laughs> I mean,
1: I think the major problem with it is what it does to the politicians in office. I think because they're so focused often, and I certainly don't think this applies to all of them. I've worked for a number of them. They don't all operate like this. But so many of them are focused on the, winning the next election, that they'll hold back on sponsoring a bill, or they'll vote a different way, or they'll make a particular negotiation because of their re-election chances. And that's not how our system was designed to operate, that people, I guess, ran their office so that they could get reelected. Um, the American system was designed, I mean, George Washington is the model. Like he, he refused to be a king because he didn't think anyone should be in power forever, or have that much control. He was willing to do what was right for the country, no matter what it cost him or didn't cost him. And I think, I think that's more the problem with the length of the election cycle, um is just what it does to the people in office
2: yeah i can't i can't agree more i mean this is something we've talked about prior to where i think this is where i think congress has gone wrong i think that congress has turned into a body that as soon as they're elected they start fundraising for their next election mm-hmm. and we're also talking now right i mean fundraising and i don't think this is this isn't this should not be illegal but contributes to the problem is you're not fundraising just from your district anymore that's no. people across the United States donate to camp. I mean, you can see campaigns um, like Crenshaw for a Republican. I mean, he's got support in Maine and California, and he's running for Texas and AOC. He's so is, cool.
1: Is, he like <laughs> be an exception. He deserves
2: <laughs> <laughs> And and AOC is the example on the opposite side. I mean, she's so yeah. compelling for her party and her supporters that there's people in you know hardcore red states. There's probably well, there's definitely people in Austin that donate to AOC's campaign. And we're talking about House members, like not even senators, House members. So I think that's part of the problem that is that we're now just, because political office is a career path, it's no longer you get in, you serve, you get out. It is now a career path for a lot of people. And because of that, they need to keep their job. And the best way to keep their job is to start running for election the day they get elected, re-election the day they get elected. So you have, you know, the House and and Senate floors, a lot of times, not, and again, not all, uh, Christie's clarification here is important. Her, her qualification is important. Not all politicians operate this way, but you know, the House and the Senate floor have just become opportunities for YouTube clips more so than anything else. Like they're not even debating bills anymore. Now they're just grandstanding. So.
1: Well, usually there's no one even in the seats listening to their speeches. Right. Really giving it to an empty audience for social media.
2: So it's (laughs) crazy. uh, this
0: mentality of, all right, this is my career. I got to get that five-year uh, retirement package. Uh, I got to start fundraising, all this. This is brought on, what, 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 what incentivizes this thing, right? Is, is it that we, we pay our congressmen too much, that we don't have term limits? Because what, I, what I'm beginning to hear is that by having this type of incentive, by having this type of election method, what it does is it encourages politicians to campaign as best as they can for for no for bread and circuits, right now mm-hmm. they're going to spend all their time fundraising they're going to they're going to select their soundbites to the most scientifically accurate method of saying the right thing to promise the right things to the right people Right. This is where they're going to promise everything for that election. And then when they're in office, they're going to do everything they can to deliver the bread and the circus. Right. So. And, and the bread and the circus is really the, the threat to liberty here. Right. Because the more that politicians start to supply bread and start to supply circus to the masses, the more that the state's power grows, the more the state's power grows, the more that liberty is threatened. So we, that, that's kind of the, the evident <laughs> that's kind of the self-evident thing that we're looking at. The more that we have this, self, uh, this bread and circus elections, the more that liberty is at threat. So here's my question. What is it that has to change to end this bread and circus style of politics, this endless uh, fundraising, this constant uh, accurate sound biting of, of promises? What's, what's got to change to make this stop?
2: Well, Stanton, that would be education, not. <laughs> that's always the answer, and that's my answer. Get <laughs> no, out, you. give me something better. Steal it every time. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that this is, a, this is one of the, and I think the reason why we see this in Rome, in, you know, at the, the turn and um, the end of the Republic is because this is a symptom. This is not necessarily a cause. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about a federal government that's too big. So there are too many things that politicians can do in order to to set themselves up to have a career. Um, Whether that's, you know, making the right friends, right connections, or doing things untoward, because politicians do that all the time. Again, not all of them. Um, The federal government is too big. The other side is there's too much that the government can give now. There's no restraint or control on those. I mean, depending on who gets elected, I mean, if Biden gets elected and tries to put into place, uh, you know, aggressively expanded, you know, social security, federal social security or federal aid system, the federal government's power is so broad that he is going to have a fairly easy time trying to push that bill through or, you know, getting his, um, his party to push that bill through. So when it lands on his desk, he's good to go the problem is we've we've strayed so far from our foundational principles that the federal government affects everything we do so we care so much about the federal government i mean you really in the 1800s you didn't care all that much about the federal government because it wasn't really involved in your life early on it was you cared so much more about your local election and, and your your state election so i think the degradation of the system has resulted in this i don't think um, i'm personally not a, an, an advocate for term limits i don't i don't think that they, i think that they violate the a republican form of government i think it prevents individuals from electing the people that they want to elect i think that that treats a symptom not a cause i think the cause there is that we've given politicians too much power so that they can use name recognition in order to get reelected you know you shouldn't be able to name a bridge after yourself that's ridiculous you shouldn't even be building bridges get out of here so <laughs> That's. I think that that um, the the problem is that the solution isn't simple. It's not just looking and fixing what the, the politicians are doing. I think that the problem really is getting back at a more limited federal yeah. government.
1: No, I think that's a great idea. I wouldn't actually disagree with any of that, except I, I have mixed feelings on <laughs> term limits. I think the <laughs> biggest problem is when our people commit to doing them and no one else does them. I think that's I, I, there, I know some people who've done that who are great people, but it's, in my view, kind of a, a very sad position to take because then you take really true good people out of office who are actually doing the right things up there and they're the only ones who limit themselves. So I tend to not be a fan of that. Either it applies to everyone or no one, in my view. Um, but I think I'm going to go on a different tack and say that. Also think media honestly is a big problem. And I think if the media would stop playing into the, I mean, there's so much like free media that campaigns get because the media today acts more like the gossip magazines of (laughs) the 90s. Like literally like, oh my, I mean, read the headlines. It's, It's ridiculous if you compare the political headlines today to the political headlines way back when. It used to be actual news, and now it's like all these theories and all this gossip and all this, oh my goodness, he stepped the wrong way, and that's somehow relevant to our lives,
0: to a- so. Ask a, a, a kind of a devil's advocate position. Well, that's just the result of capitalist tendencies that these news agencies are private. They've got to appeal to a to a market. Oh, Christy, that sounds like you're blaming capitalism for the for the media's destruction what do you have to say for yourself you capitalist
1: (laughs) great question i think my my other thought is so i think the media is somewhat responsible for like feeding that in people but i actually believe very much in personal responsibility and i think people need to take themselves out of that cycle instead of waking up every day and being like "Ooh, what's the nice gossipy headline for today or, oh, let me like run down all my Twitter feed and go attack people on social media, which actually the majority of Americans don't do, which is interesting. (laughs) But then when people do it on Twitter, then the media writes about it. And then your average person who's not on Twitter reads about the Twitter battle. So it's like this vicious cycle. And I do think if people took personal responsibility and said, this doesn't actually benefit my life. Instead, maybe let me go get on a local commission and actually affect the government in my... City. Instead, maybe let me go meet with my state representative and run my ideas by them instead of just creating this echo chamber that does no good and then, yes, encourages the media to continue to run with these stories because guess what? People read them. People want them. People should stop demanding that if we want sane elections in our country.
2: Yeah, I'm when, gonna- and one point to that, to the capitalism point. I'm not really sure that media is a good investment right now. I'm not (laughs) sure I would put money in media. So I'm not sure that they're healthier than they were in like the 1980s. (laughs) It's a little less (laughs) materialistic, I mean, it certainly, I mean, the advent of technology has made it a smaller industry, but I also think it's a smaller industry for, as a result of kind of some of its practices for sure. I mean, we've lost that kind of true, Mm -hmm. uh, in many instances, that true journalistic uh, intent behind it. And a lot of times now it's somebody that's, retweeting essentially in an article for their friends that are all from the beltway that have, you know, the hot yeah. take, you know, Twitter's a, a buzz and it's like, no, your Twitter feeds a buzz. Nobody else follows those people. <laughs> that's fair. Chrissy.
0: I know you've got to go here soon and we're actually probably going to wrap up here soon anyway. So, um, I, I think, I think that's all, those are all really, really fair points in that you've got to take personal responsibility and And I'm glad we started with this idea of the Roman Republic to understand what it is that's got to change to prevent this kind of harm. Uh, Christy, I really, really valued how you said getting involved in your local commissions, your local uh, city offices is so important. I, I tell my kids, listen, you know, the federal government has its hands in a lot of your lives, right? You know, tomato soup and bed mattresses and all that, but really most business regulations are local. In fact, if you look at how COVID has happened, it's not the federal government that's threatening to shut down. It's all these little city and county bureaucrats that are gonna threaten to take away these things. And it's also those same industries, those industries that's really what it is. It's these same local governments that are offering things to their local citizens. We're gonna build you this free park or we're gonna build you this free thing. And I think that's a great place to start. Um my secondary solution, and this is kind of a joke, but it's also not, I think we should outlaw, uh, we should outlaw air conditioning in federal government buildings. I am convinced that the advance <laughs> of air conditioning in Washington, D.C. is directly tied to the expansion yes. of federal power. You get rid of air conditioning in the swamp of Washington, D.C., those
2: guys are going to flee. and we're swapping it summer sessions only winter
1: recess
2: (laughs) 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 and as soon as a bill is introduced you have to have a vote on it you can't table it you can't put it (laughs) oh
0: man or no no you have to sweat it out you have to stay there for an entire week on just one vote that may that way no one wants to come i i am i'm all for that okay (laughs) I think I think we've covered it. I know this is a shorter episode than normal, uh, but I think that's okay. We've covered the idea of how in a, in a republic, when the citizenry allows their government officials to bribe them with things, they invite, one, terrible, terrible politics. They invite a bread and circus bribery. And two, they invite a more encroaching government. They invite a more powerful system that can take away your liberties as we see with the roman emperors taking over and replacing the consuls and we've seen how that starts to affect us today we've seen how that policy has been the 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 modus operandi for politicians everywhere across the world Um, now whether or not our debates are more divisive than when they were (laughs) in the 70s it doesn't really matter because what we are seeing is that they're using the same tactic that the Roman emperors re- used
2: 2,000 years ago. And this is what the Romans didn't ask themselves. And this is what I think Americans should ask themselves. I think anytime a politician offers to do something for you, you shouldn't look at it and go, okay, well, how is this going to benefit my life? You should look at that policy and ask yourself, how is it possible that the federal government is able to offer that to me? And if you don't like the way that that answer goes, then that's when people should start taking issues. Because oftentimes the only way that the federal government is offering something to you is because they've forcibly taken it from somebody else.
0: The government is not a creative force. It cannot make, it can only take. I love that. I love ending that. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been through a lot. The final presidential debate is actually right now, the 22nd of October. The election is in only a couple weeks who knows what's going to happen? Maybe the pollsters are wrong, as Chrissy predicted, or maybe 538 and Nate Silver get it right this time. Who knows? But next time, whatever our topic will be, um, it'll be self-evident and it'll likely be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod, as well as on Facebook. And you can listen to us almost anywhere, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.